you have to work hard at attracting and retaining good people. You know, good people have choices. There's a lot of good companies out there. So you have to, you have to differentiate yourself. You have to work at it. You can't take it for granted. One path is a long, winding, unpaved, back-breaking, bumpy, miserable road to a place called success. The other road is straight, paved, smooth, comfortable, and that road ends up in a place called failure. Welcome to the show. I am Kyle Matthews on the Matthews Mentality Podcast, where we dive into the mindset of the world's most driven founders, CEOs, business moguls, athletes, and entrepreneurs. Each episode will turn our guest wisdom into practical advice that will help you build a deeper understanding of what led them to success and the mentality behind what got them there. Let's get started. Mentality Podcast. This is definitely not a normal one uh, in the Matthews Mentality Podcast. We are we're not in Nashville. We're in the Boulevard in West Hollywood with my longtime friend and somebody I admire very much, Bob Hart. He founded True America in 2013, serves as president and CEO. Under Bob's leadership, True America has become one of the most active multifamily investors in the United States. Bob is responsible for the national expansion of the firm's value-add investment platform. Bob, I'm so happy to have you here. Thank you for joining. What a pleasure to be with you, Kyle, and to be here on a beautiful day. And it is a beautiful day. In Los Angeles, right across the street from the historic Chateau Marmont. I know, yeah. A lot of history there. Yes. Um, so what are you up to these days? What's keeping you busy? Well, um, the last 10 years has kept me busy. I, I know that, yeah. We've grown True America from zero to the 25th largest apartment operator in the nation. What are the total number of units now? We have 60,000 units approximately under ownership and management. Yeah, and that, that's a big number. Yeah, it's, uh, we span uh, over, I think we're in 18 states and about 30 different MSAs with offices uh, both west, east, and in Texas. And uh, we have about uh, 80 people now that are involved in the company day to day. and. Uh, it's it's a busy business. So 80 people. You, you started in Los Angeles, still based, yeah. headquartered out of L.A.? Yes. Offices around the country are mostly run from Los Angeles? No, we, we have sort of a hub-and-spoke model. We Our corporate headquarters is here in L.A., as is our accounting back office. But um, we deploy our acquisitions, asset management, our construction management regionally. So we have a operation in the Pacific Northwest that covers that region in the mountain states. We have operations in Dallas, which cover Texas and the Midwest. And we have an East Coast sort of second headquarters, if you will, in Arlington, Virginia, and one in Miami, Florida, that covers the Eastern Seaboard, including the Southeast, which we're very active in. And what was the total number of projects now? Uh, total number of buildings. buildings. Yeah. We have over 200 buildings. And how often are you able to, to get to the assets? Well. I, uh, I try to make it a point to get to every asset I can twice a year. That's a lot. Yeah, so it's a lot of traveling. Uh, I hope you have a good rewards program. <laughs> Among other things. Yeah. <laughs> so many companies refer to them themselves as, as apartment owners, but really um, you're in the business of being a housing provider, right? I think so, yeah. And that's a, it, it, you know, I'll speak, I think I speak for most housing providers. You, you know, you want to be financially successful and... You know, you, you definitely want, if not need, the, the assets to perform, but 
but at the same day, the responsibility of providing housing, 60,000 units and however many individuals that is within the units, it's a, it's a significant chunk of human beings. Yes, it is. It's, um, it's like several cities. Yeah. yeah. Um, and, uh, you know, the process doesn't stop once you've acquired the property. It only begins. I think owners um, and sometimes landlords are getting a bad rap these days uh, throughout the United States, kind of following the COVID period. But really, um, and I put myself in this category, I feel like we're trying to do the socially responsible and ethical thing by the residents. And, uh, you know, we're investing capital from uh, institutional investors who are other hardworking Americans that are invested in their pension funds or through insurance companies. And it's circulating capital back to the housing stock of the country, which then supports the workers of the country. It's like a circle. It is. Yeah. You touched on it. You, you beat me to it. I actually, I mean, you've accomplished so much, and, and True America is such a force of nature within the multifamily space and housing provider space. But if you don't mind, I want to I start at the beginning. You grew up in Boston. If, if you could, just talk to the audience or share with the audience, what, what was your childhood like? Like, you know, kind of start your story. Sure. I was a city kid. I uh, actually grew up just north of Boston. Uh, on the other side of the Mystic River in the f- in a little t- hamlet called Chelsea, Mass. It was 2.2 square miles. Uh, it's the smallest city in the Commonwealth of Massachusetts. And uh, you could see the Boston skyline from it, Logan Airport from it. And I grew up in a, in basically a upstairs, downstairs duplex uh, with my f- grandparents living downstairs and my parents living upstairs with me. Did you have brothers and sisters? or I'm an only child. An only child, yeah. gotcha. And um, what was that like uh, growing up in Chelsea? It was um, kind of a little bit like the Hardy Boys, you yeah. know. Uh, it was, um, we didn't have a lot of things. Uh, you know, we, we basically had to be inventive with our recreational time and, you know, all the things you would imagine the kids do in urban areas, playing stickball and mm-hmm. You know, riding their bicycles. No and that video type games of thing. at the time. No video games. No right. fancy camps. Like none that. of that stuff. Just get outside. Get outside, and we'll give you a call uh, when you're, it's time to go yeah, home. Yeah, just when some. Yeah, get home before dark. What did your parents do? My dad was a U.S. postal worker okay. for almost forty years, and my mom was a housewife. Got it. And um, you know, I was. Uh, I, I think you had shared the story with me previously. You drove a. Uh, when you were growing up, uh, I think to make some money, you drove an ice cream truck. Is this? Yeah, that's becoming urban legend. I, uh, <laughs> I, uh, I needed to put myself through college. I went to a private school, WPI in Worcester, Mass, and um, I got a partial scholarship, but I had to gap the difference myself. My parents really didn't have excess funds, and uh, I couldn't make enough money working for somebody, so I started this little enterprise. Uh, which was a basically a leased mobile ice cream truck that I ran through the projects of Greater Boston from about 11 in the morning to about midnight uh, from the time I got out of school in early June till the time I had to go back at Labor Day. Share with us a story or two um, from that experience. Well, uh, you know, it, it's it, there's a lot of great memories when you're part of a community and you're basically seeing everything at street level. Um, no pun intended. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I can think of a lot of times when, you know, believe it or not, um, you're not the only person doing that, so the competition 
is very fierce. So I get there many times where you're trying to get to a, a baseball game or, or, or an event before someone else could and getting into, I'll call it a competitive scrape here or there. It's a, lot, a metaphor for uh, buying commercial real estate, exactly. right? Exactly. Yeah, pre- it prepared you. It prepared me. Were you, I've, I've known you to be one of, if not the most driven person and just always going and always moving forward. Were, were you like that as a kid? Um, I think it became uh, part of my DNA as I lifted myself up over the years and became more confident and and engaged in entrepreneurial endeavors in real estate. So I think it it's not something that uh, uh, I woke up with. So it was more activated over time and developed? I th- yeah. I mean, I was an only child growing up in a urban tough neighborhood, so you have to take care of yourself, whether it be physically or or just to get through the- uh, Mentally, emotionally. Mentally, emotionally, the challenges of life. And I've always, fortunately, been very durable uh, in my thinking and very positive. So I think life is a do-it-yourself program. You can read a lot of things, you can hear from a lot of people, but you have to have a certain drive within you to achieve something, whether it be in real estate or medicine or whatever field you're in. In the conversations we have on this podcast where we have what I call just very driven high achievers and in, in diving into you know, the whys, but also the hows, how they did it, um, we're always kind of exploring the nature versus nurture question. And um, you know, the nature side is like, was Bob Hart always like this, where your teachers would have said, oh, we knew he was going places. Or is it nurture where, you know, kind of touched what you touched on, um, you know, perhaps over time has developed and activated. Um, what are your thoughts on that? Well, I was always um, very academically minded and very civically minded at the same time at an early age. I was involved in, uh, I happened to be of the Jewish faith and Jewish youth organizations that had a community service orientation even at the young age of 14. So I was able to always incorporate, we'll call it extracurricular activity that was that kind of an outlet with academic study and working hard to get to the next level. And, and I've stuck with that my whole life. I've always tried to find time for uh, giving back in some way. Speaking of giving back and speaking of your Jewish faith, you had a, 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 a significant honor recently. I think you were honored by the Jewish Federation. Yes. I know I was in Nashville, so I was not able to attend, but we had a big Matthews contingent there. Yes, you did. Talk Thank to us you. about that night. That was uh, a really great night. Um, yeah, I, I was uh, recognized by the L.A. Jewish Federation Real Estate and Construction Council for my involvement, we'll call it, in humanitarian causes over many years, but also um, to raise money for the organization that provides a lot of community service and outreach and help, not just to the Jewish community, but to the broader L.A. community as well. And I made it my mission to, as I do with all fundraising efforts, to set goals that were very, very high. So we raised over $3.3 million through people like yourself that came out and supported us, um, frankly, despite some of the, their own challenges in the current uh, economic environment. Definitely within real estate, yeah. Yeah. So um, it was a great moment. My, uh, my wife and daughter and a lot of my family were there, and my daughter, who's 18 years old and 
who I thought was very shy, spoke in front of 1,200 people yeah. to introduce me. So it's a very, very proud moment. And, and she, she thought you were pretty cool, huh? Well, maybe for a minute or two. <laughs> <laughs> I, yeah, I bet. It was a cool night, and um, the guys were just, they said it was just, it was a beautiful night and very much a culmination of so much uh, effort and energy poured in over the years. Yeah, you know, I, when I spoke to the, to the audience, um, I didn't really talk much about my business achievements. What I talked about was growing up in a, what I called a hard scrabble town like Chelsea, in a lower socioeconomic environment, how important it is to remember that as you're achieving goals in your life so that, frankly, you remain humble. And it's a reminder that there's a struggle, and at the end of that struggle, there could be some very nice things, but you're always kind of remembering, at least I do, mm -hmm. that uh, it wasn't always like that. And so it allows you to, I think, keep keep your yourself in balance, if you will. Yeah, and, and uh, I, would, I would argue also it's, uh, it helps you find gratitude. Mm-hmm. And, and perspective in that, like, you know, I'd, I'd say a, a lot of us, you always want more. Right. But if you keep, um, in, in kind of paraphrasing what you say, keep, remember where you came from, and then you compare that to what you have in any given time, you, you, it's it's easy to find gratitude because you, you know, you have so much more than maybe what you started with. Mm -hmm. um, let's go back to that hard scrabble town. Um, you're driving the ice cream truck, you're making ends meet. Talk to us about college, and, and, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, to, you know, kind of uh, lead you here. In college, was there, was or, or even maybe before that, did you know you always wanted to get into real estate, or, or was that something that just happened organically? Well, when I, I graduated uh, with a degree in civil engineering from WPI, um, I had a lot of different opportunities to work on engineering, but I was very interested in real estate then, but had no clue how to get into it. Uh, no family background. You know, it wasn't like today where you could be academically trained and go into banking or management or sure. brokerage. Um, be an analyst. Or, uh. So it took me uh, about six years after I graduated college to make my first point of entry. And I did that after actually graduate school. I went to the Anderson School of uh, Management at UCLA. Uh, and after that, I started investing in real estate is how I got involved with it. So it really evolved through uh, a number of years and really started with an entrepreneurial. Did you endeavor. go straight from WPI to UCLA with no time in between or was there some work experience? I worked for two and a half years as an engineer and that's what brought me to LA. Got it. I worked talk in, about that. Yeah. I, I came to Los Angeles as a 22-year-old. Not a tough sale at the time. Uh, yeah. You go from Boston to LA. So, so, all right. So that's the first deal. Talk to us about those first couple of years buying real estate, what we were identifying, how that portfolio grow over time, and then maybe a couple, one or two seminal moments, some big wins that you feel really, you know, set you on your way. Yeah. I, I mean, I was pretty scrappy. I was, you know, how a lot of people start out just in residential. So I was buying uh, single family homes. I was buying fourplexes. Eventually, I started buying small land parcels that I was subdividing. So, and and then building and developing larger homes in the Hollywood Hills. So, really, for the first decade or so that I had been an investor, it was really uh, bootstrapping and uh, and and really trying to put together a portfolio that eventually led to adopting my entire career into real estate. 
Where were you finding the deals at the time? Was it like classifieds in the LA Times or? A lot of that, um, some brokerage, um, and uh, basically that's it, those two ways. And any, you know, would you drive streets and for sale by owner type thing? Sometimes, um, if I, you know, identified an area I liked, but um, I think a lot of it really came through brokers and relationships. I was buying REO, I was, you know, I tend to do business with the same people over and over again. Yes, as you do. I'm loyal in that sense. I appreciate that. All right, so you touch on it is, 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 you know, doing some deals and starting to build a portfolio, and I think you had said kind of led you to choose, you know, focus on real estate as your profession. Talk to us as, uh, about, you know, that period of time where you really became what I'll define as a professional investor. You said, this is what I'm going to do with my life. Right. So for a period of years, I was working as a business executive while investing in real estate mm-hmm. because real estate sucks up a lot of cash. It does. So you better make sure you have enough income. Asset rich, it. cash poor. That's it. So I really learned the business um, not through the upside, but I learned it through the downside. So by the time I had accumulated a, a lot of entrepreneurial kind of small properties, we had the RTC crisis, which hit us in 92 The to Resolution Trust. The RTC, yeah. uh, there was a, you know, the deregulation of thrift and loans that preceded that in that the 80s. Like the late SNL thing. Yeah, yeah, and there were a lot of SNLs that did not have strong balance sheets. They were not highly regulated, and they failed, which had a major uh, effect on um, the real estate community. And in L.A. at that time, um, you had a huge amount of jobs lost in the aerospace industry. Yeah, because it was at, was it after Persian Gulf uh, one and and then the fall of the Soviet Union? And, exactly. Uh, yeah. Or as I said to my wife, uh, it's not my fault. Some guy with a little scar on his forehead uh, decided uh, to tear down the wall. <laughs> I, yeah. yeah. Was <laughs> and, it Gorbachev? Uh, yeah. And then it was just a bad economy in L.A. Mm-hmm. And then you had the Rodney King riots, unfortunately. Yeah. And you had an earthquake. And you had the earthquake. So there were a period of years um, where things were not so good. And you got hurt. You could get hurt. I got a little hurt. <clears throat> I got a little hurt. I watched my net worth go down. I had to learn how to do some workouts, and uh, it was humbling. Yeah, that's what we call hard lessons. You never forget them, but they're 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 hard. Yeah, and and that's when I decided to pivot toward. Um, asset management and dispositions and a friend of mine who's a 30-year friend who's been an investor co-investor with me uh, at the time he was working for the executive life insurance company which had been seized by the state of california by then insurance commissioner john garamendi because they were heavily invested in junk bonds Mm. and um that was quickly coming to an end with the fall of uh fall of drexel so there were a lot of these things going on at once. And, and it was a Drexel Burnham? Drexel Burnham, uh, yeah, Michael Milken. Michael, Michael yeah. Milken. Michael Milken um, yeah. And they also made an example out of Fred Carr, who was the chairman of Executive Life, because he was a big investor in that. And the insurance commissioner has the powers of conservatorship if they feel the balance sheet or solvency of an insurance company could be impaired. So I came over when it was a trust to work on the real estate team and help them with both asset management and dispositions. And as a stroke of just timing and you know doing my job correctly, I ended up 
liquidating and managing the entire remaining portfolio that the company had, which amounted to about a billion dollars of assets. Uh, of real estate? Of very large portfolios of real estate. Across all product types? or Pretty much, yeah. Across almost every product type, including securities and, and mortgages. Yeah. So that's where I really, uh, in those intervening four years, really went from buying duplexes and land to liquidating companies. Hmm. It was a, a, sig- a, ser- a significant education for sure. It was trial by fire. Yeah. And uh, it was pretty political because you had different trustees who had different constituencies, whether it was the state of California or the insurance companies or the policyholders, and everything was under the uh, watchful eye of the court system. Got it. So I really learned about compliance and legal authority and how to deal with partners because they basically, when the insurance commissioner took over executive life, they were seizing control and that control was also seized from the various sponsors that put these deals together. A lot of layers. A lot of layers, yeah. That had to be deconstructed. So so you're liquidating this billion-dollar portfolio. You're learning a lot across all product types. I know ultimately multifamily became your focus. Yes. But really learning, you know, gosh, I can imagine retail, office, industrial, multi, the whole thing. No no industrial, but we had office, multi, um, a little bit of retail. So, And as you liquidate, you're kind of liquidating yourself out of a job. What, what What comes next? Well, we all knew that. We yeah. all knew we were working ourselves out of a job, which was fine because it was a, an end game to it. So after you shut the lights off and you're the, nearly the last person yeah. standing, um, I, um, I knew that I, I continued to want to grow my career in asset management and, and workouts. But we were sort of coming to the end of that cycle in the late 90s. Yeah, a lot of it had been cleaned up. Yeah. yeah, so I was recruited to um, the Chicago-based uh, pension fund manager, Heitman Capital, in their LA office. And uh, a gentleman that had brought me there, um, little did I know, was really looking to find his replacement because mm-hmm. he was moving on to another another company. So I got involved at a time in Heitman where they were downsizing their portfolio they tried to do a, uh, a REIT roll-up, and it didn't work. And so they they basically had to downsize a lot of properties that, um, you know, for better or worse, maybe weren't performing the way they should. And so I was involved in a lot of large dispositions there as well, in addition to some fee-for-service asset management that we took on uh, to, to work out uh, – properties that had been either taken So again, over. you're managing dispositions and, and uh, maybe not full-scale liquidation, but... Uh, d- orderly, dil- more of an orderly Yeah, dilution. Yeah, dil- and that's, that's where I really learned more about, you know, the large commercial brokers, sure. who's who, yeah. the right attorneys, um, you know, again, taking what I had learned um, through the executive life process uh, in, a, in a much more, um, you know, bigger, a bigger stage, should we say. And so you're at Heitman? Heitman Capital, yeah. And how you're there for a couple of years? I was there for a little over three years. And um, they um, were basically done with all that liquidation by the year 2000. There was not a lot of distress left. And the world was looking differently about, about real estate. And I had been continuing all that time to build my own portfolio. Okay. okay. Yeah, side by side. And were you still doing, you know, kind of the smaller residential, or had you? Yeah, mostly. 
Okay. Mostly. Uh, I was, I was going to ask, have you start, did you start to invest at least in the private side of more traditional multifamily, five yes. and 10 unit buildings? That's exactly what I was okay. doing. I, um, one of the reasons why I've never invested more recently in single family homes is because I invested in single family homes at a time. Got, you got it horrible. out of your system. I got it out of my system. Yeah. And so I started investing in multifamily, exactly. And I did it with partners this time. And were these friends and family, like your friends from the, the metaphorical country club, or was it, you know, like it was just one high net worth family office? What was no, the... it was uh, friends and f- friends. No, I, I come from a very small family, so it was friends yeah. and, uh, <laughs> and people that trusted me. That's a good point. How did you, okay, so you, but you have this career, you're doing these deals on the side. How do you, you have investors in these deals, you have friends, are you, are you having to do like, monthly statement updates, sending them out, and investor calls. Like, how are you managing that, but still? Things weren't as sophisticated then. Uh, It was pretty bootstrapped. Most of the capital was ours. Maybe some came from from third parties, but I don't remember ever having to do that. But I do remember when I finally got to 10,000 apartments, a friend of mine said to me, how did you accumulate 10,000 apartments? And I said to him, 10,000 Saturdays. I was going to say, yeah. yeah. So I used to spend a lot of time on weekends uh, touring buildings, checking on things. I mean, it was really pretty direct. And I, I, we, I self-managed, too, back then. You so, self-managed? Well, I had a... You know, I had people on site. Yeah, yeah, I had on-site. What people. if it was? What is it? What is it in LA? Is it? Is it under sixteen units? You yeah. over sixteen? Over you have 16, to on-site. Yeah, yeah. So if it was under sixteen, you, you had no on-site. You were the property manager. Well, I had area people that. Okay, I was going to say like toilet clogs at two a.m. No, I never did that. I was about to say like it never quite got to that level. Okay, I was like, but, you, you don't sleep then. No, yeah, no, right. no, that wasn't me. Fair enough. So I really built a, a kind of a small management company to, okay. to as the portfolio grew. And so, all right, you, you're building this portfolio on the on the personal side, and it, it it's becoming significant. It sounds like kind of towards the late '90s and the early 2000s. Early 2000s, yeah. You're 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 at the insurance company, then you go to Heitman, and, and again, correct me if I'm wrong. If I'm if I'm hearing you correctly, a lot of asset management and or selling and disposing, and, and in, in some cases. Full liquidation. What comes after that? It was time to go on offense. That's what I was going to. I yeah. I was so by say, the year two thousand, it was time to go on offense. Um, and when I was, you know, working at Heitman, they had spun off a portion of their company to what was then Kennedy Wilson in Santa Monica. They sold their property management company to them, and Kennedy Wilson in turn moved into the Beverly Hills area, into the same suite of offices as Heitman. And this happened in the late 90s, so I got to know the folks there. To share with the audience, who's Kennedy Wilson? Kennedy Wilson is a New York Stock Exchange global real estate company that had its roots in real estate auctions. And uh, is now a investment manager, they active in multifamily mm-hmm. office, hotels, uh, um, you know, land development, and all sorts of things. And so you had sold... At Heitman, and, and, and if I had to guess, this is kind of where your relationship came. You sold, you spun off a property management. I didn't. Heitman oh, you know, okay, corporately okay, got did it, which, which caused Kennedy Wilson to merge their office space with the, with the folks there. And that's how I met them. That's how you met them. That's how I met Bill McMorrow and some of the, my colleagues there. And um, Kennedy Wilson was not f- uh, foreign to residential real estate, but didn't have an active apartment program. 
They did a lot of condos, and uh, they were doing some apartments, but not on a programmatic basis. So when I came over there, I literally wheeled my stuff down the hall one day on a trolley. Was that the conversation? Like, hey, come over here, come on offense. You've been you've been asset management. You've been selling. Like, let's go buy. Exactly. Okay. That's exactly what happened. It was pretty organic because I already knew the folks. And and so let me let me just push time out in terms of your career arc, and kind of go back to something you had said. It's you know how do you get ten thousand units? And you said ten thousand Saturdays. In it in the pursuit of achieving your professional success, it sounds like there was a tremendous amount of sacrifice. Yeah. Yeah, it's just because of the way I chose to do it. Other people have taken different paths. I chose to wear a couple of hats at once. Um, I was, you know, on one hand, I had a job, which I needed to perform on. But on the other hand, I had this portfolio that I was a living, breathing thing that I had to run. I'm going to ask this question a couple of times in a couple of different ways, but it's the question is why? And um, it appears that you had this, I very good career, you know, yeah. it's asset management yeah. and you're working for very reputable companies. Yes. You know, if I had to guess and you don't not to share it's, you know, and you know, probably um, had a nice life and style in terms of compensation from your, your, mm-hmm. your career yet, you know, mornings, nights and, and weekends, you're, 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 you're saying, Hey, I, I need to do more. I want to do more. I want to build more wealth. I want to build this portfolio. I want to be more successful. Uh, why? You know, I don't, I don't know the answer to why, but it was part of my DNA. Maybe because I'm a deal junkie. So that's I don't the, know. See, that's the nature part. I think it was, I think it was in my nature. Um, I like being an owner. I like being the guy with the, who's, you know, has the deed in his pocket. I like showing up on site and figuring out ways to run an asset better or to improve it more. Um, there's a certain personal satisfaction that comes with that, not because your balance sheet's getting bigger necessarily but because you're really doing something that is tangible that you know has good long-term benefits. I think I, I, I read it earlier, your your bio in terms of your titles at, at Heitman or again, the insurance platform. And, and you know, if there's a hundred people with that job, 99 are like, hey, I have a good job. I make good money. I pay my mortgage. Ideally, I put some away. Um, my, my, my partner, my spouse, my kids, I provide. But you're the one out of 100 said, but I'm also going to go do this. Mm-hmm. And that's why I asked the question why. I was trying to figure out those those incredibly highly driven human beings like yourself is just what is that motivation? Where well, is it coming from? You know, I grew up in a, like I said, a blue-collar, lower socioeconomic environment. My dad was a postal worker. We didn't even have a car. Do you, do you think, like, and again, whatever you want to share, It's it, some of the motivation might have been at the time financial insecurity? I, I don't look at the cup half empty. Yeah, I look at it as half full. So to me, it was not just financial security. It was the opportunity to build something that uh, could build upon it in a cumulative way. Yeah. And, and a passive income also. It wasn't so passive for me. No, that's, that's <laughs> yeah. a good point. Yeah. Yeah, it was just income. It wasn't, it was active income, I think they call it. Well, it was income and, and, and balance sheet growth mm-hmm. because, you know, apartments were growing in value and rents were rising and, and so forth. So it's a, it's kind of like a game, you know? Yeah. But it's a real game. I want to go back to, I want to keep moving forward, I should say, in terms of your career and uh, 
and talk about you go over to Kennedy Wilson's multifamily platform acquisitions, right? Yes. What was the the vision at the time? What was the mandate? Hey, come over and this is what we're going we're gonna to want to buy. What would that look like? Yeah, I mean, Kennedy Wilson is a very entrepreneurial organization. And it was, you know, buy, you know, deals that we can make money on, basically. And uh, do so in markets that we know. So, and try to do it with other people's money wherever possible. That's, that's good. <laughs> And was it institutional capital or private capital? And institutional capital, but not pension fund type capital or big insurance companies. It was more um, aggregated capital or opportunity funds. Was it core product, core plus, like value add? What were you guys kind of? I what concentrated were you more on value add. Uh, during distress periods, we were able to buy some core product inexpensively, but my concentration has always been value add. And what years were you there? I joined the company in January of 2000, and I left in June of 2013. Okay, so 13 years. Yeah. It's a long time. 13 and a half. Um, and through a, f- a full cycle, a real cycle. Through a very full cycle. The first couple of years, you, you went over there in acquisitions, but you eventually, um, you elevated. Yeah. What happened was um, there were a couple of us there. Um, my colleagues would buy one deal, I would buy four. And the pacing of what I was doing was such that it really started to gel together uh, and expand geographically. And uh, basically I was appointed to be the president of what became a separate company called Kennedy Wilson Multifamily and built up a team. So it was like having a company within a bigger company. And what, what what would you attribute your ability to buy three, four x more than your your, your peers? I'm not. I, I'm fearless. Yeah. <laughs> I, that's what, I always look at the the bright the side of the full, deal. I'm a deal junkie, if the numbers right? don't pencil, you just kind of change some of the assumptions. And no, then they pencil. no, no, no. I didn't say a financial <laughs> engineer or anything. But um, you know, I had a vision. I had a vision that they should be a, become a bigger investment manager uh, in multifamily. And, uh, and what were the markets you were focused on? Well, at the time, uh, you know, we were focused primarily on Southern California Got it. and San Diego and Orange County. And as we gained confidence and experience, uh, we branched out to Northern California, where we did a lot, particularly in the East Bay. We went up to Seattle and Portland and eventually uh, to Colorado and Utah. Okay, so Western US, but heavy emphasis in California, specifically Southern California? Yeah, and at that time we didn't really buy Phoenix or Vegas or New Mexico. Well, it probably helped you out when 2007 and eight hit. It did, we had a very um, well-located portfolio, but like everybody else in 2008, there were a lot of, which is very similar to what's happening now, there were debt rebalancing issues on short-term mm. debt. And you also had a lot of, and it's, again, very different than today. Today, you still have a lot of equity in the system. You've had the denominator effect, which has slowed down the flow of equity. Then a lot of equity providers, very large institutions, uh, were not willing to write a check to rebalance debt because they were hurting uh, in many areas of of their businesses. And there are not a lot of successful capital calls at the time. No. And so... Um, to Bill McMorrow's credit, he took the company public again, and it raised enough capital to pair that capital with third-party investors, which gave us a lot of dry powder. 
And during that more difficult period of, call it 09 to 011, we were able to recapitalize a lot of real estate at really good prices from organizations that we were partners with that frankly weren't willing to do that. And were you president at the time? Yes. And when did that happen? I believe it happened around 03 or 04. So, yeah, it was pretty quick. Yeah, it was pretty quick. A few years afterwards. And and where were you sourcing deals from? Was it direct from owners or brokerage community? Mostly brokers. Brokerage community. Mostly brokers. And so I want to get back to, you know, do you just buying so much more than your peers? Same platform, same opportunity. And I know you said fearless, but was it just you you were just working the brokerage community harder? You were pounding the pavement more? So when I first joined, um, no one knew who I was in the brokerage community because other than people that maybe I had been involved with on the, on the distress side or the sales side. So my view was to identify all the top brokers in Southern California and go make sales calls on them. No yeah. different, instead of them being the salesperson, I was a salesperson. Yeah. And I would sell them on selling me deals. That's right. And that's how I did it. I, I've always had a close relationship with the brokerage community because I view them just like I view other principals or my investors. They're very much a part of the, the whole program. And uh, without them, um, you wouldn't have any trade. Well, thank you, Bob. We're people too, all right? That's right, you are. <laughs> no. So, uh, no, I know, I know you're, you're very, uh, you're, you have very deep relationships in the brokerage community. Uh, we were just talking about a couple um, off air. But uh, so your president, the GFC hits, you're actually well capitalized, but also fearless. You're saying, hey, you know, well, be greedy when others are fearful. Yeah, but it takes a little while to get to the point where you see the other side. There was mm-hmm. a period uh, between, call it, mid-08 uh, to maybe mid-09 where things were really dark. Mm-hmm. And I told a lot of my young associates there to basically smile a lot and keep your head under the desk. Yeah. Um, it was just a tougher time. It was tough. Yeah. It was brutal. I was sitting in a cube at one of those brokerage companies. Luckily, I was, you know, ignorance is bliss is the best way to describe me, you know. That's. I, I was went, I, I was I, young. I, I, and I started my job, my first job out of college during the height of the, uh, uh, with the Reagan era when, when interest rates were 20% hmm. in 19, 1980. But I didn't know any better. Hopefully we I don't get a, back there. I had a great job as an engineer. I'll ask you about interest rates later. Yeah. Um, all right, so from 2000, 2013, what did the portfolio look like when you got there? What it looked like when you left? When I got there, it was probably under 500 units. Mm. Uh, when I left, it was 20,000 units. Mm. And uh, it was across half a dozen states. Uh, it was a quality portfolio uh, with properties with a lot of scale to them. It had lots of institutional investors and the company had also been building a side business side by side to that uh, in Japan we had we had started buying apartments over there oh, you did in addition to those that we were buying in the western United States how did those do they did fine I was part of that team that helped create that and really helped build the team there uh, and helped uh, with all the acquisitions there as well did you, f- just a practical question, did you face challenges? Because on the multifamily space in Japan, especially with uh, demographics, um, you know, I, population kind of peaking and then mm-hmm. potentially softening, was it a challenge to achieve rank growth out there? Yes. 
Yeah. Um, but what wasn't a challenge when we first started was getting 100% financing. That's good. And Japanese LIBOR was less than 0.1% at the time. Wow. So we were borrowing uh, almost 100% of the deal at you know maybe 1% or 2%. And, and cash uh, on cash is like 12 to the 15. Rent, the renters there are very sticky. They don't move that often. And they don't require the same level of maintenance or supervision that they do in America. So if you're borrowing at 1% to 2%, what were cap rates at the time? Seven. So you're ca- so you portfolio uh, in Sapporo at you can't, I, I, don't, I can't even do the math of it. What is a cash on cash when you're borrowing at one, your cap rate seven, you Let's put- say two. We'll yeah, put two, on. cap rate yeah. seven, and you're putting 0% down. I don't even think there's a percentage to apply to that, but- your, your yields are phenomenal day one. They were, the cash and cash yields were great at the beginning. So even if rents soften, there's still a, there's a lot of buffer there. There's a lot of buffer there. Interesting. And, uh, and is that is that in the same bucket of capital as stateside where your yields are much lower, but especially in California at the time, rent growth, you know, outside of a little bit in the GFC, rent growth uh, was material. Rent growth has been steadily, other than the COVID period, 4 to 5% yeah. organically. But when you compound that over a five-year period, it's that's 30%. Yeah. So, but, you know, if you look back, when I started buying apartments in, call it the valley here, four, one bedrooms were $400. Today, they're over $2,000. So there's always been a compounding effect uh, over time uh, of rent, but they were very, very cheap in relation to people's incomes. I'm going to talk to you about, ask you about interest rates. I'm going to ask you about, about rents, especially in, in California and, and multifamily, given your experience. But I want to, I actually want to focus um, right now on 2013. You're at Kennedy Wilson, 13 years. You're doing great. Again, again, these are my words. You have a phenomenal uh, professional job it, it probably well compensated status and uh, very comfortable but then you go and start your own company company make yourself uncomfortable again why did you do that it was a tough one um, I was over 50 years old at the time and I had I thought uh, you're still 50 I wish I was <laughs> I had an investor who liked me and I liked them uh, it was a large insurance company called Guardian Life, and um, they were an investor in my multi-platform as well as in Kennedy Wilson as a company. And they wanted to build their own platforms and become more of an investment manager. And um, after a number of years of investing with them, I saw an opportunity um, that they helped me recognize to do my own thing. And so I had. I got up the nerve. It was hard to leave because um, I had a great group of people there and I had a very strong relationship with the founder and leader, Bill McMorrow. But I knew that if I wanted to build a bigger company of my own, 100% devoted to multifamily, that I needed to do that in an independent way. And, and you said built up the courage. Talk to me about that process. Like what was going through your head? What was the time? What was everything you said? I had a pretty good perch. I had a great group of people that I had built uh, to help me to help you know create this you know company called Kennedy Wilson Multifamily, and there was no compelling reason to leave other than the one I induced upon myself to do it again, and but this time build it differently and bigger. 
Interesting. Um, how'd those conversations go? Which ones? The ones when you said, hey, I'm, uh, I'm going to go do my own thing. Well, it was not an easy conversation to have with someone that had, uh, someone that still is a mentor. Um, and uh, after a while, it, it, it sort of sunk in that I was going to make a change. Okay. So where'd the name True America come from? Well, I love these stories about the names. It's always sometimes it's incredibly thoughtful. Sometimes like, yeah, we just threw a dart on the wall and it stuck. But now, um, True America was cobbled together after two false starts. Um, naming a company is not so easy if you want to patent the name. You have to have an email domain and you have to have a legal entity. And the name of the company can't be the same as someone else who has a trademark name in your space. So when I started, I was going to call the company New America. New America. And after I started going down the road of New America with, you know, the LLC and the um, tra trademarking, I learned that there's a company that a fellow named Andrew Farkas owns called NAI Commercial. And NA stands for New America. I never knew that. No one knows that. I didn't know that. And uh, I did not want to approach him about that. And uh, so I quickly abandoned uh, New America. Then it became True. Well, it became the next name. Um, I'm a sailor of hobby. And uh, the compass reading, True North, was what I called the company because it was, uh, you know, yeah, sure. my hobby. So when I proceeded down the road with that name, I quickly learned that two Canadian companies were vying for that name on a U.S. trademark because they were going to go public. So they were vying for that name. Yeah, you don't want to battle them. Well, I said, maybe I will battle them. They'll never figure it out. But I quickly abandoned that after uh, actually launching with that name. So I was at a party and... Uh, uh, with your like-minded folks in the brokerage community. And I said, guys, what do you get when you cross New America with True North? You get True America. Yeah. And you just drop the E. Just so that's it. how True America was Very born. cool. Very cool. And yeah. then and then the domain wasn't too expensive. No, I had a, I, we got the domain done. We got the thing launched. We got a website. We used GoDaddy. Uh, we did right. it. We did it on the, we did it on the cheap. Good for you. Yeah, me too. Um, how did the idea? Because you had you had run a you had run teams. Yeah. You had run a, a platform certainly, but how did owning, founding, running a company differ from what you were doing previously? And and and, and or um, what what surprises uh, laid in store for you uh, upon founding it? Well, it was a complete do over. So I had to recruit people within the industry that I was in. I wasn't going to poach people from a mm -hmm. company I had built up. And so I went out to recruit as I knew my transition time was coming and tried to find some of the best talent I could. And basically, that's what I did. I, uh, I, I knew I was going to start somewhat modestly. So I started with 10 people. I started with about $10 million of working capital, of which some of it was mine. And uh, it went from there. And what was your wheelhouse? What were you guys targeting? 
institutional Class B properties, similar to what I was doing at Kennedy Wilson. But yeah. so you're able to leverage a lot of the relationship, the brokerage community, the deal flow. Yeah. Perhaps day one was yeah pretty I good. I mean, and again, and maybe I I never take anything for granted, but what I thought maybe was that you know my brand was closely tied to the company's brand, and it might be hard to relaunch under a new name and a new brand. And I found out that. It wasn't so outside hard. of the updated email address yeah that people were relying on my judgment and my integrity and, and uh, if you know just speaking from a broker's perspective regardless of whether you're at kennedy or at this new company true mary if you get under contract barring a surprise you're going to perform well that's the whole thing um our one of our uh, internal mantras at true america is that we transact in relationship capital we do what we say we're going to do we're not involved with, you know, grinding people or retrading or any of the things that, you know, are not so nice about our business. So we try to build deep relationships, and we try to do that by working hard. We, you know, when we are out acquiring real estate, we really make sure we know the markets they're in. We understand the demographics. Uh, we understand what's going on with the actual piece of real estate so that uh, as we move through the process, this good people um, you know good people have choices there's a lot of good companies out there so you have to you have to differentiate yourself you have to work at it you can't take it for granted so you need to put incentives in place benefits in place uh, give autonomy to people create you know uh, you know, younger people want elevation of title. Very quickly. Very quickly. They always come in and say, hey, you know, Mr. Hart, I just want to say, like, titles are important to me, okay? But I'd like a better title. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And I'm <laughs> going to take next Friday off, by the way. It's, yeah. Uh, hey, can I work from home? Yeah, can I work from home? You didn't mm -hmm. know Fridays were the new Saturday, did you? Yeah, we're, <laughs> we're as I said, we're now Europe. Um, can I bring my dog in the office? That's right. Do you have pet insurance? Uh, it's part of my comp package. <laughs> yeah. But right. I don't want to affect my comp. Oh, uh, no, I know. It's uh, every generation has so you, unique you, talents and quirks. It's about recruiting and retaining uh, the best people. And then in our case, we grew like an internet company. We were growing like about, about a billion and a half of assets a yeah, year. Yeah, fast. And some people can't fast. keep up, unfortunately. And so you have to work at building a culture where there's a balance between growth and, and, and training and retention. But you need the right talent to do that yeah i just had this i had a conversation yesterday with a business owner and he, he, he said that same thing he said one of the, the hardest things has been the company has grown um at a, at a good pace and he goes some people grew faster than the company and we couldn't service their desire to grow within their career fast enough and we he's like folks like that too but he said a lot of people just couldn't keep pace with the growth and and evolve their skill sets as the company's skill set needs evolved and, well and it, it um, you know, it, it unfortunately some relationships uh, um, are lost or, or resentment and, and, and true America grew very fast. Yeah. But, um, you know, we never wanted anybody to go away mad. Yeah. And uh, I think we've created a pretty good culture. We have a lot of friends in the business, a lot of people that 
uh, maybe are not there any longer because they've either formed their own companies or they've moved on to something else or our friends. The Bob Hart coaching tree. That's what it is. You're like the Bill Belichick of oh, multifamily. Wow, that's very nice of you to say. Um, how much gas left in the tank? What, what, what does the future look like for you? I think the future looks great. We're working on uh, taking the company to another level. We're, we're a national company now, but we'll be even more of a national company over the next five years as we go deeper into places like your hometown, your adopted hometown of Tennessee, uh-huh. uh, into the Northeast, into the Pacific Northwest, where we already have a footprint, yeah. but we're going to deepen our business. To really saturate. Yeah, to just I call it building businesses within a industry, sure. and uh, through that you need to build up people in those regions that have the skill sets, have the autonomy. We're also diversifying our platform into other areas of residential ownership, and uh, building that out as well. And we'll do that over the next five years so to create a d- more diverse company. So you're gonna keep you just can keep grinding, keep going. I'm gonna keep going until I can't keep going is that what it is like you're just going to keep going until you can is there no uh, no, i was going to say is there is there a is there a date is there a milestone is there a a, you know number for the company where you said okay i'm good i've accomplished what i i need to accomplish at true america and i'm going to go do something else now no i don't plan to do anything else but i i do plan to uh eventually uh slow down a little bit and maybe move into more of a chairman like role but not yet what does slowing down look like for bob hart i can't imagine this so you have to you have to paint the picture i'm afraid to even paint the picture myself (laughs) but it probably would involve um doing more um nonprofit work i've served on several boards Mm -hmm. i'd probably be able to spend more quality time in in doing that do you have any any hobbies outside of outside of uh, philanthropic work. Any any hobbies that the, the audience should know? I you have play a, golf. Uh, I don't know. I do play golf. I'm a member of a couple of clubs, but yeah. I'm not a very good golfer. Yeah. Uh, it's because you've uh, been working too much. That's right. I used to say I was a golfer by invitation. I always play. say, Bob, don't trust a broker with a, with a with a low handicap. You can't be working too hard. You know. <laughs> that's true. Don't let them tell you. Yeah. That they are. My greatest passion is uh, is sailing. I have a that's beautiful right. sailboat that I sail in the ocean here in the Pacific. I enjoy the water. I paddleboard. And uh, I, I like you and McConaughey and uh, oh sure yeah he uh, calls me all the time when he wants to K- Anthony <laughs> Kiedis down in Paradise Cove yeah the whole crowd Point Doom I know I need to get out there with you you and Laux um, so paddle boarding play a little golf cars cars yeah. I have a passion for cars That's cool. my first car and uh, well not my first car but well it actually was it was my first car was a '65 Ford Galaxy 500. My yeah, second yeah. car was a 68 Pontiac GTO of one I which I own today. Not the same one, but a different one. So I've, I've always liked American uh, cars from the 60s and 70s. Yeah, me too. Um, I'll, I'll, I to, I I'll wrap up with, uh, I do want to talk more about your, your, your charities and, and the energy you put into that. But let's talk a little real estate real quick. Okay. Yeah. What is it, what, what's going on in the current market? What's your opinion on what's happening? Uh, you know, the the interest rate hikes over the last you know fifteen months. Yeah. Uh, on the brokerage side, the the, the velocity decline in tra- transactions. Like, what are you seeing out there? Where do you think we're heading? Well, what you have, um, you had one of the greatest, quickest spikes in interest rates in the history of the country. Mm. Um, even I think it was even at a greater pace uh, 
or as great a pace as what occurred in the 40 years ago in the 19, 1980s under Paul Volcker. It's just under 81. So it's 42 years, the greatest in 42. And even then, um, the uh, what Volcker did, I think it was in 81, because he, he, yes. he raised it up, then he dropped him, yeah. and then it came back and he raised it up big. And that That's second good. raise was was yeah. technically, it was higher than the one uh, started in um, in 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 last year, but it, it was it was tough. Yeah, I mean, look, it, has, it doesn't help asset values, okay? But you have to look at what's good for America, and what's good for America is not to have high inflation. Uh, we've created a lot of jobs, and incomes have gone up, which is good for our business. But at the same time. You don't want to be like Argentina, where your mortgage is at 30% or you can't even uh. get one. So the United States economy is very strong. Um, when you listen to folks in the morning on CNBC, the right ones will tell you that they think the, uh, the economy has a lot of legs to it and it's very strong. Uh, like I heard Larry Fink the other day, uh, heard uh, John Gray. He was a little more tempered than he normally is, but I'm optimistic. I'm optimistic about the future. So you think there's a possibility for a, uh, let's call it a soft landing, where the economy doesn't go into a recession, but inflation slowly floats back down to earth? I think so. I mean, I can't, I'm not an economist, I can't tell you, but I think what's going to happen in our business, which I, I think interest rates will normalize soon. I think they'll be at levels that make more sense. Can you define normal? Four and a half to five percent fixed rate loans, which is. So, do you think that we get there by way of the Fed, for whatever reason, slowly bringing it down, or spreads tightening? How do we how do we get back down there from? I think it'll come from mid fives to mid sixes. Right. I now. think it'll come from, you know, the Fed bringing down the cost of uh, cost of money. Uh, I think cap rates will start to normalize. Also, I mean, three and a half caps were not normal. Um, if you really look at. Uh, cap rates over a long period of time, even uh, coming out of the great financial crisis, cap rates really didn't expand for very long. Mm-hmm. You know, there were deals trading for just a brief period of time in the sevens, but it was... Yeah, it's just, it's just such cheap capital, such cheap borrowing costs um, well, cheap for borrowing so costs, long. And there's so much equity in the, so much in equity, the global cheap, system. Cheap equity. I mean... You know, people talk about right now with the asset level debt increasing so much, which it has, is, um, but there are, the cost of equity, cost of LP equity has gone up significantly in yep. the last 12 months. Yep. But I think this will also serve to, unfortunately, shake out the less capitalized, the less sophisticated, the less capable hmm. um, sponsors of, of real estate deals that you know, are not prepared for this kind of situation. Yeah, who was it said when the, you could tell who's been uh, swimming without their shorts on when the tide goes out? What is it? I'm not, it <laughs> no, might be Charlie Munger, I can't remember, but. Probably. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, the tide's going out right now. Same applies in the brokerage space, yeah. and uh, just like uh, on the principal side. So you, uh, you anticipate rates um, going down over, what, the next 12, 24 months? Yeah, we might get a few more hikes in between, but I think they'll start to Man, normalize. I hope you know something I don't know. You know, so uh, that would be lovely. Yeah, we shall see. Um, I think the, I think sitting on the sidelines is not a great idea. I think, uh, I've always been an investor across cycles. I've bought and sold during, you know, different cycles. Obviously, when you're in a very low period, it's very hard to, to be a buyer, but um, I, I've, I'm in it for the long term. 
What advice would you have for someone listening who is thinking about um, starting to invest or becoming an investor? Uh, much like you, you know, what, 30, 40 years ago when you bought that first, those two homes in Venice, like yeah. what did, what, what, you know, what kind of high level advice and then maybe what practical advice from an investment perspective, I, recognizing you're not a financial advisor, but uh, how would you, um, how I'll would tell, you, you encourage I, someone to get started? I'll tell you what I tell uh, young folks that ask me that question. Put some skin in the game. Nothing can create a more visceral reaction than when you have your money at risk. You know, find find a piece of property you like or find someone that you want to co-invest with or something you like and go do it. Go go make that investment if it's something you believe in and, and then manage the hell out of it. I, I To piggyback on that, um, as it relates to multifamily specifically, because that's your focus, I always say, look, one of the best ways to get into the investment side of commercial real estate is a you know two three and up to four unit apartment building it is because you could get homeowner financing because the banks consider that uh, up to four units uh, consider it a primary residence so you can get that higher ltv and then um you know if you're in a if you're buying a four unit you could have three of those units and in some ways subsidize the mortgage it may or may not cover it all depending on what market you're in but it is a way to get into it and you live there for two years and Ideally, you know, if you can turn some units, push some rents, make the building a little more valuable. Um, and then um, you live there for two years, you get that $500,000 uh, exclusion, Exclusion, which is great. Uh, you know, I always say if you want to be on the multifamily side, um, that's one of the best ways to get in with, a, you know, because a lot of people don't have a million dollars lying around. No. But, you know, 50, 100 grand, again, not in L.A., but, yeah. you know, in a lot of markets throughout the U.S., like even Nashville, a four unit is uh, maybe not Nashville, but you know Murfreesboro or Hendersonville. Like it, it's still somewhat affordable. What a, a lot of the great fortunes were made from a duplex. They started this, that way. Yeah, or two homes in Venice. Or right? two homes in Venice. You don't still own that, do you? <laughs> I wish I did. You should go back and buy. Just walk up and just say, "Hey, like whatever you want for it." It's still there and it still looks the same. That's L.A. You know, yeah, I'm sure it's been tried to be developed ten times, but the. Uh, the the, nim- the nimbies uh, w- i want to talk to you about you know california yeah and uh you know i obviously used to live here and but you know i was traveling all across the country so nashville was a perfect spot for me to land but uh we have heard about people leaving the state cost of living being a big driver obviously some politics too um what what do you what are your thoughts and opinions without touching any um sensitive topics about um, being a, a housing provider in California, but uh, some of the messaging coming from the politicians where, yeah. you know, they might not look at you as favorably. Um, how, do you, how do you manage that as, a, as an owner? It's very challenging in, uh, in California right now, but you can't indict every, the whole state. Uh, what, what's happened is COVID has had a dramatic effect on people's perceptions of landlords. Landlords were treated as pariahs during COVID. They weren't treated as heroes. Yeah. And um, a lot of the protective mechanisms that were put in place by the various cities and city councils didn't have a counterbalancing benefit to the landlord. And as a result, there was a lot of government programs to help people pay their rent that needed it. Some people abused that. Some people have gamed the system. And unfortunately, there was a price to be paid for that. But a lot of the laws that were put in place at the state and local level continue to 
penalize the landlord and create a disincentive for new investment. And that's not going to solve the housing problem. And I know, I know you, you have relationships with a lot of these um, politicians just haven't been active in, in California. And are they receptive to that conversation? Were they receptive to that conversation? Not, not here in Los Angeles <laughs> or San Francisco. Now I know why you're buying in Nashville, right? No, but I buy, I'm buying a big deal no, in Orange County I right know, now. And I love San Diego. And I, I love Los Angeles. But, uh, and you know, you can't tax someone at 5.5% when they sell. And you can't the mansion tax. The mansion tax. I, when they first came out with it, I, I, you know, I would say I'm an idiot. So I thought they meant mansions, um, but I guess multifamily is a mansion too. So no, it's just a, a yeah. street name they gave to it. It's, yeah. it's really uh, talking about real estate as a whole. Yeah. Um, and um, I mean, what we need to do is encourage more development and more workforce development to benefit. Uh, the consumer. Look, I mean, the two biggest dr- motivations is we need more homes and we want rents to go down. And I'm a simple-minded real estate guy. The best way to do that is let them build. Let them build. I think what we want to do is let rents normalize and we want to create more more housing choices for people. You know, in many cities, people have to commute a long distance because they can't afford to live near their jobs. It's tough, especially in L.A. I was sitting yeah. on that 405 today. I was like, man, I didn't miss this. No. That's why you got to get a helicopter. I, you know, but this is why you got <laughs> to run for mayor. You got to run for governor. Come on, you win. I used to have those aspirations, but it's... Uh, well, you need to get back in that game, all right? I'm going I'm to start the campaign right oh, now. You God, heard it first God. on the Matthews Mentality Podcast. Bob Hart for mayor. When's the next one? Is it 2024? Yeah. All right. Well, well, I'm going to be your campaign chair. Thank you. I will get you zero that. votes. <laughs> <laughs> you can't vote here either. <laughs> That's right. That's right. Yeah. Um, all right. Let me ask you this. What would? Uh, what is a piece of advice um, that you would have for listeners to achieve whatever it is they think they want, but achieve what they want either personally, professionally, in life? My advice when I talk to young folks, um, particularly those that are quickly finding dissatisfaction in what they're doing, is I I ask them to reflect a little bit and think about what they can do to make their companies better, their lives better, their families better, and their community better, rather than just looking for the next rung on the ladder. So it's it's about sticking with things and, and, and growing not just yourself, but the organizations that you touch and you're a part of so that you can feel like you've accomplished something. So I think there's a lot of, um, there's a lot of mobility, but sometimes too much mobility doesn't harvest the skill sets necessary to grow in a profession if you're constantly just jumping around. And, and I want to tie that into really the over the, the overarching topic we talk we touch on, which is like a mindsets and mentality. Is um, first, let me ask: like, if how would you describe your mindset, your mentality, and your approach in life? Looking back, when I look back, um, I've been working well for a long time, um, over forty years. Um, I think the thing that has always defined my mentality is, is finding the cup half full, not half empty, and trying to go above and beyond 
my immediate job to make a contribution uh, to the company I'm with and or to the partnership I'm involved in and to also find some balance uh, through community service and and, and other things and uh, you know satisfaction isn't something you're born with you get that through taking baby steps over time yeah which sometimes can be a challenge for impatient people yeah what um because I'll get to fulfillment and satisfaction at the end but um, if you had how would I answer this, ask this question if someone were to describe Bob Hart how would you, what would be the best compliment to you in terms of someone telling someone else about you someone describing you like how would you like whenever you, whether it's today or five years from now whenever you're retired looking back to say hey this is who Bob Hart was as a as a professional as a person how would you like to be described I, I, I think I'd like to be described as someone who through his own efforts and his own achievements influenced my life and my career as a as a as a mentor uh, whether it be uh, as a career mentor or uh, a civically minded mentor, someone that had an open door to others who was willing to help others uh, in thinking through you know, their life's mission and uh, being a, a person who gives some kindness and some consideration to everybody. So through your effort, positively impacted a lot of people? I think so. So I'm going to wrap this up. I want to talk about positively impacting people which also kind of gets to the question I want to ask about today. What brings you fulfillment and satisfaction is um, let's let's talk about we've spoken a lot about multifamily, about true America, about your professional career. Talk to us about your uh, philanthropic pursuits. Yeah, I um, I have a couple different passions. Um, um, I'd like to see the the end of the scourge of homelessness that. Per- pervasive in Los Angeles get under control and I've been very passionate about an organization for the last 25 years called Chrysalis Chrysalis. yeah who who through direct efforts in the community uh, in Skid Row and in the Valley and Orange County and the West Side have a sanctuary for people emerging out of homelessness to teach them how to how to be self-sufficient and find a job and uh, the more we can do things that um, are directly impactful that will solve a problem like that or reduce it, the better we're all going to be in our community. Are you and is this or this city seeing progress with the homelessness? Yeah, I think the skeptics would say no um, because it's been such a high incidence and a lot of homeless people come to L.A. and Unfortunately, there's a lot of, um, you know, veterans that are homeless. We've been fighting wars in the Middle East for three decades. It creates a lot of PTSD and a lot of homeless. But um, this was a very difficult election for the city of L.A. Um, Rick Caruso and Karen Bass. Yeah, it was uh, close. It was a very close election. Karen Bass won. Um, I think she's doing a pretty good job of trying to tackle the homeless problem. She's trying to get it under control. She's buying up uh, various buildings and motels and getting people situated in them. Um, there's been less 
uh, visible tent cities, but we have a long way to go. I did notice that the last two trips out to Los Angeles, because, you know, I'm going between offices and I spend a lot of time on the freeways and getting off at the off ramps, which normally is where you're going to see a lot of them outside of downtown. And I noticed uh, it was a lot less the last two times. Yeah, it's a public health crisis. And, you know, we have to be able to let the folks that are taxpayers or or renters or tourists be able to enjoy public assembly on the street. And if you have a lot of homeless people and you have petty crime and you have, you know, police that are afraid yeah, to fear, do their jobs. Fear, fear of violence. And, and, um, it's not a... Yeah. It, it, you touched on it earlier. So a lot of the drivers of drug, drug use and mental illness. And so... Yeah. You want L.A. to look like Hollywood land, not the scene of Blade Runner. <laughs> this is true. This is It was trending that way, but it, it hopefully appears. I think it's turning. I was in Seattle yeah. recently. It's turning. Yeah. Uh, I think there's a, a realization that the heavily progressive policies of these major cities have backfired a little bit. Yeah. And they're not actually helping those they were intended to. You can't have open drug use on the streets. You just mm-hmm. can't do that. Yeah, and and you you know you can be compassionate, yes, but, you can. but also still say, hey, we still need a functioning civil society. We need a functioning civil society. Yeah. What else? In addition to Chrysalis, I know you're you're involved. Well, I'm in, I'm involved in a lot of different organizations. I'm involved. Uh, I have an 18 year old daughter that just graduated from the Marble School for Girls. I'm involved with that school that's been around since 1889. I'm on their board of trustees and. Um, I care about education. I care about uh, education of w- young women uh, to achieve, uh, you know, things. And that school does a lot to uh, promote that in Los Angeles. Um, I care about uh, science and technology. I'm on the board of trustees of WPI, where I went to college, uh, and uh, seeing seeing the mission of, of that school uh, grow and achieve great things. Um, Hey, you've, you know, you look, you've always been just so generous in general, obviously, um, with your philanthropy, but also with your time. You I know, try I, to be. I, I, used to, I used to cold call you, and you're kind enough not to hang up, so I appreciate that. I don't do that. No, you're very yeah, but nice. You're, you're a very hard guy to hang up on, though, Kyle. Yeah, well, because I'll show up at your door, and like eventually it's like, look, I'm not going to go away. So. No, you're, you're, gonna you're ubiquitous. You're everywhere. <laughs> that's right. I the tried. other organization that I care deeply yeah. about is the City of Hope here. Yeah, in, that's what in, I was going to ask. Duarte, they do remarkable things for people, yeah. and um, they're doing God's work there. Yeah, literally. Um. All right, Bob, that's it. I mean, I can't thank you enough for taking the time. And it's a it's a remarkable career that you've had and continue continue to grow. Um, True America is an absolute force of nature in the multifamily space. I mean, you want to talk about ubiquitous. You guys are everywhere. And then, you know, I just heard you, you're going to be in more places and buying more deals, which doesn't surprise me. And it's not just you. It's everyone on the team over there. You have such a great culture. You, thank you. You guys, they work hard. You guys and gals, but, but they're just... They're fun hangs, you know. They Thank really you. are. I love seeing them. At, I love seeing you at the conferences and NMHC and all the shows, and that's always been a joy. But uh, again, thank you for coming on. Thank you for sharing time. I appreciate you sharing, you know, your story and also, you know, your mindset and how you approach that, you know, because it's it's true. You, you it, this is my opinion. You, you've had more, <laughs> there's a lot of times in life where you had achieved something, and and almost everyone else would say, "Hey, I'm good with this," and you just kept pushing and pushing and pushing. So I've always wanted to take time to dive in and understand like why and um 
and so I appreciate you sharing that with me and it's uh, it's, it's been fun hanging I, I can't you, wait uh, to have you out in uh, Nashville come out to the farm I'm looking forward to it actually you'll have to teach me how to ride a horse I, I don't know how but but I got someone <laughs> who can help you thank All you right. Bob thank you good to see you